Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 45. Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 45. I am Eric Marshall. And I am Nick Schlegel. And uh, Chris Gullen cannot be with us today, but we have a great show for you. Uh, we're going to be talking to the czar of noir, Eddie Muller, today <laughs> about film noir. And uh, it's, it's going to be a really good interview. It's going to be uh, really fun. Uh, and it, if you want to hear the first time we talked about film noir, we did talk to Dave Hogan uh, back a couple of years ago now. Uh, and you can uh, catch that in episode number whatever number i think it's like three or something like that it's in the yeah. first five i'm sure i think yeah yeah it's one of the first five episodes and um uh and if you want to hear our first discussion of film noir with dave hogan uh it's it's the previous episode in your feed uh because i re-released it uh and it was last uh last week's episode uh originally it was episode number uh i think three or four or five it was a very early mm-hmm. episode for us but um these might be good companion pieces where with dave hogan we talked very generally about film noir and then with eddie muller we're going to dive pretty deep into uh some of the lesser known films uh films noir um film noir <laughs> and uh you know and, and talk about his extensive experience and knowledge about uh not just the history of film noir but uh the the people he's met and things like that uh this is the part where we do pickups though where we talk about what's going on with us it's been a little while um nick what's up what's new with you well it's a lot changed since we last recorded eric that's for darn sure uh you know, we haven't uh, done an episode in quite some time, and, and that's very simply because we've all been, you know, really busy. Uh, and uh, in my case, you know, um, this is my first podcast with That's a Wrap from my new home in in New York, in Western New York. Um, so that's partly the reason I think we just haven't been able to record anything was there was just a lot of uh, you know, chaos and, you know, uprooting going on, moving from one state to another, getting settled, uh, starting a new job, pretty stressful stuff. You know, they, they say that, uh, you know, moving in, in a new job at the same time is one of the most stressful things you have to deal with in life. And it's true. It's, it's definitely, uh, it, it, it takes a toll. So that's what's been going on with me is I, I moved to uh, New York and um, loving it here. Uh, Western New York is gorgeous. It's fall right now, so it's it's you know ex- exquisitely pretty here. Um, the, a lot of mountains in the area, and and all the trees are on fire with their colors. And Halloween just came and went, and you know fall at, on the university campus, particularly a really pretty one, is it's a great time. So, uh, but I'm I've established myself. Uh, things are going great at Alfred University. In fact, I just had a uh, double feature, Halloween double feature I did a few weeks ago uh, of Fright Night and Trick or Treat, which was a lot of fun. Cool. And cool. Um, that's about it, man. Just, you know, um, that's what's been up when you say what's been up. That's what's been <laughs> up. That's what's been new, up, yeah. New home, new state, new job. Yeah, that's actually uh, quite a lot going on for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, I'm in uh, – I'm in a new semester, I guess, from last time. Still teaching at, uh, at the University of Michigan Dearborn, uh, doing some uh, screen studies and, and things like that. Uh, so, 
Uh, not a lot has changed for me. I, uh, I saw the uh, Film Noir Festival uh, at the Redford Theater uh, a few months ago, which is uh, how we got Eddie Miller on the show because he hosted it, and it was great. We got to see um, uh, Prowler and, and uh, 99 River Street and Double Indemnity. And I have to tell you that seeing Double Indemnity in a theater with Film Noir mm-hmm. lovers was really great. You know, hearing people <laughs> laugh at the yeah. – things that you always laugh at and, and just having this full house uh, of people. Uh, it was great. We saw a lady from Shanghai, the Wells, Orson Wells film, uh, the killers, uh, uh, the killers was on the rock. 99 yep. river street. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mentioned that. I think. And then a uh, woman on the run, which I had never seen before. Um, and didn't know anything about, to be honest with you, which was a really, really nice experience. So that was, uh, that was really a great experience. Um, and I, you know, having, uh, Eddie do the do the introductions and stuff was really great, but just seeing those films on thirty five millimeter in that wonderful historic theater here in Michigan, uh, the Redford Theater was was fantastic, and uh, it was a, it was just an incredible experience. I couldn't believe the the, the crowds. I mean, there are a lot of people there. Uh, so that was uh, that's probably the most exciting thing that's happened to me in the last few months. To be honest, just being able to to see all that uh, all that stuff, it was. Uh, I would have really loved to have seen Indemnity uh, with a full crowd. I it 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 seems to me to be one of the most contemporary of the '40s and you know early '50s noirs. It uh, when you put it on the performances, the um, which film the characterization. Double indemnity. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know the performances, the story. Yeah. Uh, just the 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 the, the repartee. <laughs> the, the repartee. Everything about it feels remarkably contemporary. Uh, uh, in almost any decade, I think. So yeah. it, it 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 just it's you know timeless. Yeah, I agree. So that was great. Uh, other than that, I haven't even I haven't been in a movie theater besides that probably in four or five months. I, I, I'll bet. Uh, I've been watching a lot of uh, more TV shows than movies uh, lately, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, I, I have some I have some catching up to do. I think as far as that goes, but um, it's you know. But you know how it is. We're both in the middle of a semester, teaching, teaching, you know. <laughs> yeah, oh, so busy. Yeah. Um, I, I managed to do my little uh, Lawrence Tierney Film Festival and watched um, Born to Kill and um, Death Thumbs a Ride. Excuse me, The Devil Thumbs a Ride. So hopefully we can talk to Eddie about those. Yeah, yeah. That's gonna be uh, that's gonna be nice. So yeah, so we're really looking forward to this interview. Uh, if you are interested in uh, looking at the show notes for this, it's at that's a wrap show dot com. Uh, we have a Facebook page you can look at and like and interact with us on, uh, and you can find us on Patreon as well. It's all on that's a wrap show dot com. You can link to all that from there. So here on episode 45 of That's a Wrap, we have special guest Eddie Muller. Hello. Hi, how are you guys? Hey, Eddie. Good, good. Uh, unfortunately, Chris can't be with us today, so it's just me, Eric Marshall, and then uh, Nick Schlegel over there with, with Eddie. And uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to talk about film noir today. Eric, why don't you uh, let the listeners know exactly what transpired and how, how we were able to get Eddie to come on the show. Uh, and, and I'll interject at some point uh, a complaint that I have. 
as you tell your story. <laughs> okay, sounds good. So uh, here at the here in Michigan at the Redford Theater, there was a uh, film noir festival. Um, okay, I'll interject right now. Forty six years I lived in Michigan. A month after I moved to New York, you come. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, timing. And, sorry, sorry, sorry about that. But. Yeah, and Nick only lived a few miles away from the Redford Theater as well. Uh, going yeah. there, yeah, religiously for the last seven to ten years. <laughs> well, we're trying. We're trying to figure out how we can get to New York, so we'll we'll follow you there, maybe. Okay, great. I'm in Western New York, but pretty mobile. I can go anywhere within the within the state pretty easily. Okay, very good. Very yeah, good. we're coming so, for you. We're coming. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, and it's it was well worth it. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was great. You know, I showed up on Friday. I wasn't sure if I was going to go to all three of the uh, days, but I showed up on Friday where um, it was. Uh, we did ninety nine River Street, and I don't have it in front of me right the now. Killers. We showed the killers. Yeah, the killers in ninety nine uh, River Street, which is great. And uh, I had seen. I had never seen The Killers before that, but I had seen 99. And uh, your introduction to each of the films and the stories you told were so mesmerizing and you you were so facile with, with you know discussing them that I came back Saturday. And um, on Friday, you were talking about you know how we need to get young people involved you know, and into film noir and things like that. So I brought my girlfriend's 12-year-old and my girlfriend with me on day two. And we watched Double Indemnity. And she loved it. The twelve-year-old did. Um, although she did fall asleep uh, during um, uh, what was the second feature of that day? Uh, the, Prowler. the Prowler. Yeah, she fell asleep. But you know, she's twelve. You know, so it was late. Oh, that's, okay. you know? that's above and beyond the call of duty. That's. Right, right. And then uh, I decided, what the heck? I'm going to show up on Sunday as well to see a lady from Shanghai and. Um, a woman on the uh, run. Yeah, yeah. So I, I hadn't planned to, but I said, you know what? I'm just going to come and do that. And that's when I uh, approached you and we talked for a little while. And, uh, uh, you know, we, I asked you if you'd yeah. like to come on the show. So that's uh, that's the little background. And, and of to- course, uh, ha- happy to do it. And I, I was kind of astounded by the Redford Theater, um, how, how great a venue that is and how uh, dedicated all those volunteers are. Yeah. Keep Absolutely. that place up and running. It's it's absolutely astounding you know you, you should probably you, you probably heard me say at some point during the weekend that you know when i started doing all this it was about uh rescuing the films sure and then as we started to grow and expand uh out of the home base into a road show then it was like we found you know the perfect matches and all of these uh preserved vintage theaters and now it's like, well, we also have to preserve the audience for this. So, you know, bringing 12-year-olds is a vital <laughs> right. uh, vital part of the mission, really, because uh, th- th- I think this is something we face all the time now. Uh, you know, the stuff I do for Turner Classic Movies and things like that, this is now, uh, this is the front burner issue when it comes to classic films is keep younger people watching these movies. Uh, so I'm, I assume we'll get into a little bit of that today, but, uh, it, yes, we will. It, is, it is kind of, kind of fascinating because, um, you know, something like that event at the Redford is like a perfect storm where you get the movies in the right movie house with the right audience. And it's easy to understand like, wow, this is a treasure, you know, 
if only if only this happened all the time but it's now <laughs> you know a special event kind of thing but um it it and it's amazing like i say back to the folks at the redford that it it takes a lot of dedication to make this this happen and how many cities has noir has noir city been to well we've been to quite a few the the ones where we do like an annual show i think uh-huh. we're at about and uh there's always negotiations for more and uh you know it a lot of it has to do with um <laughs> how much can i actually do uh <laughs> you know cuz it there's a lot of travel and a lot of legwork involved in all this and you know i don't think it's any huge deal but it is for people who come to the shows it is something special to you know and i appreciated what you said eric about you know the intros and and the context adding more to the to the whole experience because you know it's hard to to let go of that. I mean, we could probably be in you know thirty cities if it was just show the movies, right? Right. You know, um, but but then it stops being something. Not that I think I'm all that special, but uh, being able to put on a show where you're you're showing people that the extra effort is being made. And that there's some um, there's a real passion behind it is what I think uh, people connect to. Well, no, that's not entirely true. As uh, as as Robert Osborne himself says on the back cover of uh, your newest book, Gun Crazy, no one knows more about film noir than Eddie Muller. And that <laughs> you are you are along with the films, in my estimation. When I found out that you were coming. I, you know, I was, I was in tears. I was like, oh, are you kidding? I was sending Eric the email going, seriously, this is, you know, I really now is this <laughs> what happens when I've moved away. But, um, you know, I got like a good report from, from Eric about everything, how well it was attended, how, how, how and I had my former students who were going to it from Wayne state, you know, just down the road in Detroit. I, I do hope you come to New York because I'm a, I'm a noir geek. <laughs> Eric's a real big noir geek. We love we love noirs. I've I've taught a class on it, in fact, and and uh, I, I'm just hopelessly addicted to it. And fortunately, unlike you and a few other scholars I know, uh, I've I've not I've not been through the whole quote unquote canon yet. I've still got seventy five, eighty movies. I you know that are sort of canon texts that I haven't even gotten to yet. Can I tell you a little secret here, Nick? Um, sure. I haven't seen everything either. <laughs> I, I find that hard to believe. No, because here's here's the reality of that, and and I appreciate your calling me a scholar. Although I'm going to draw the line well short of that. Uh, I think I'm a well informed enthusiast, uh, and the the thing about the not having seen everything at a certain point when I really started devouring stuff when I was, uh, you know. I watched a lot. Then when it came time to write books on the subject and all that, then you really knuckle down and you watch everything as much as you possibly can. Then it reached the point where I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to burn out on this stuff or I'm going to burn through it. And I'm not going to have anything left to watch when I'm, when I'm 75 years old, it's like I'm sitting there in my house thinking, God, I'd love to see a Gloria Graham picture. I haven't seen before. And so I I have consciously going to watch that one. You know, I'm, I'll wait. I'll hold off on seeing this film. So it, it's odd. I mean, a lot of people, when I tell them that, they say, are you nuts? I mean, how can you fairly judge this or that? And it's like, I don't, I don't really judging it. 
I just <laughs> want to watch it and enjoy it, you know? And so the, exactly. given, you know, that they're not really making movies like this anymore, I want to right. make sure that there are some that I can watch in 20 years, hoping I'm still around, uh, that I can watch and experience them for the first time. So, well, yeah, that's a great theory. The, uh, the, the squirrel and the nut theory, just putting some away for, <laughs> for the winter. Yeah, you know? I'm, I'm not joking. There's a couple of Gloria Graham movies, Man on a Tightrope and The Good Die Young. I have not seen those films. Right. So you just say our films. And I, I consciously <laughs> have avoided watching them because it's like, no, I'll save it. It's like, you know, the, the meal that you want to eat. And it's like, I'll get there. I'll get there someday. <laughs> there's only, there's only one I'll first time. Yeah. <laughs> There's only one first time, so you got to hold them out, right? Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's so good. Uh, um, you said something at the at one of the shows about um, what you consider. And you know, there's a debate about film noir. Is it a historical cycle? Is it a genre? Is it a style? Um, what do you? Uh, where do you draw the line? How do you uh, define noir? I I agree with everybody. No, same. I um, since I am a writer. I tend to look at these things from a writer's point of view. So if I, you know, uh, I'm writing a novel or a screenplay or something, I have no problem saying, well, this is very noir because it, it hits all the, the right notes in terms of the themes and the characters and the, you know, uh, the compromised protagonist and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm not going to really strenuously argue that as an organic artistic movement, uh, and I'm speaking now purely of the Hollywood version of film noir mm -hmm. that, you know, it started really, um, you know, I mean, we can argue when it started, but it, it happened from like 1944 to 1952. Uh, that's when it was genuinely a movement when all the studios were producing this stuff and everybody wanted to take a crack at it. And, you, you know, Universal was pumping out 10 of these a year and, paramount was doing it and and for god's sakes when mgm starts doing it then you know it's it's for real you know <laughs> right, so, yeah um you know a, a, as a movement and something to talk about in, in that way yes there is a there is a period you can bookend it i think uh but i i choose not to do that because i find that the the discussion and the debate about it in large measure is what keeps it in the forefront of, of this discussion, you know, uh, that people are having about it. I mean, you don't, you don't see people debate Westerns or musicals or something, you know, they debate film noir and that's what keeps it, uh, alive for a lot of people and fresh. It's like they dive in and it's like, okay, what's my take on all this? And everybody's take is totally legitimate, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, it's the way they look at it. I'm, I'm not, I, I, you know, people want to get up in my face sometimes and say, how, how can you say this or that? And it's just like, really, seriously, you're going to, you're going to take it uh, to this extreme. I mean, it's just movies, right? But <laughs> you know, it's in um, it, which it, the documentary, which I've shown in class uh, multiple times, bringing darkness into light um, does a really nice job. I think in the first 10 minutes of framing all of the historians and authors and scholars, different takes on it. Cause you know, the, the documentary of which Eddie's a major part of kind of, you know, bounce back and forth between people who are saying, well, this is what it is. And this is what it isn't. And this is what, so yes, that, that debate is ever present and ongoing about what it is. And just like you, Eddie, my, my real introduction to uh, noir in many ways was via Paul Schrader. 
you know, um, mm-hmm. it was it was his initial work on it. Um, I mean, I'd watched some of the films with my grandfather growing up, but my first of, of official reading about it was through Schrader, just like you talk about in, in your newest book on, on gun crazy. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that, uh, you know, I've interviewed Paul Schrader and uh, uh, other guys like Barry Gifford, whose work I think is, is so informed by noir. And I think this of Schrader as well, to, to the extent that a lot of his movies, I, I won't even call them neo-noir or anything. They're just noir to me. Right. You know, um, I mean, especially ones he's written, some of the ones he's directed. But, you know, a a picture like Autofocus or Light Mm -hmm. Sleeper or something like that. To me, those are those are film noir. Yeah. You know, and I don't think I don't think he sees it that way. No, probably doesn't. He said, no, you know, film noir was this thing that happened. And it was, you know, he he is definitely one of those people that bookends it, you know, started Mm -hmm. here ended there and and i find that a lot of the newer artists like to think that their work is outside of noir uh you know gifford uh, you know barry's a friend of mine and we've talked about this a lot and he says you know no 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 i don't i don't do noir and it's like heard every thing you do i mean it's all over there and uh you know but it's just i find that kind of interesting that they they want to separate themselves from from uh, the original movement, um, and and I always make a point of saying, you know, that the, the stuff that interests me the most, the newer stuff, is is extends the ideas, the original ideas right. in film noir. That it doesn't emulate it; it extends it, and that's when you get into stuff like uh, what David Lynch does hmm. uh, in in his stuff that I would consider noir, the Twin Peaks stuff and Mulholland yeah. Drive and things like that. Uh, I'm not going to say, oh, that's film noir, but it's in the DNA. In the DNA, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. You know, another thing that you uh, that you brought up was um, the uh, idea of uh, classifying some of the films or thinking about them in terms of who produced them, as oh, opposed yeah. to like perhaps the directors. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that. Yeah, I find that in the classic Hollywood era. Uh, for all the grief producers get, and I mean the the history of cinema is largely written by people who who massively favor the directors. Uh, but if you go back and look at a lot of the work of the producers of that era, you can really see that these guys were a creative force. They may not have, have chosen exactly where to put the camera, but they were doing everything else. I mean, uh, you know, Mark Hellinger, who, you know, produced uh they drive by night and naked city and brute force and the killers and all this stuff i mean that guy was uh, a major force in the film noir movement in hollywood but he never gets any credit for it and and lately i've been uh you know on a bit of a campaign to to have people recognize the incredible contribution of joan harrison who was alfred hitchcock's secretary uh, who went off on her own as an independent writer and producer. I mean, she wrote a lot of screenplays with Hitchcock as well and with Hitchcock's wife, Alma, you know, and she became a producer and she produced Phantom Lady and the strange affair of uncle Harry and uh, dark waters and, you know, all kinds of uh, really significant noir films, ride the pink horse, uh, and nobody ever mentions Joan Harrison, and and I just think she was a, a a crucial figure in Hollywood at that time for for uh 
raising, shall we say, the uh, sophistication level in these types of stories. And then she would go on to produce Hitchcock's television show in the 1950s, which in a way is sort of TV noir. A lot of that is very much TV noir. Um, anyway, so I've always felt, and even producers who sometimes uh, written them to be uh, meddlers and people who interfere in stuff like Jerry Wald at, uh, at Warner Brothers and later at RKO. I mean, Jerry Wald made a lot of really great movies, and a lot of them happened to be noir, and uh, that's no accident, you know. Uh, so I, I, my research in all of this has really uh, balanced out uh, the, the, the credit for these films, you know, between the producers, the writers, the directors, and in, and in many cases, the actors who, you know, ha- had much more power than people realized uh, at, at the time. Because it, it didn't look good necessarily for an actor to be, uh, you know, all over the production because it's like, what, you, you don't, people don't want to employ you anymore, so you have to do it yourself. <laughs> but um, it would surprise people. You know, you get you get guys now like, uh, you know, Kevin Costner or Mel Gibson or somebody who make produce their own movies and stuff. But that was happening way back. You know, <laughs> I mean, obviously, all the way back to Chaplin and uh, Buster mm-hmm. Keaton and these guys. But certainly in the noir era, guys like John Garfield and Burt Lancaster, you know, Humphrey Bogart, even in the women, you know, like Joan Crawford and and woman on the runs case and Sheridan, you know, they're actually the producers of the films. They're making the big creative decisions. So that's, that's all. I just, I, I think it's time in cinema history and, and the way it's looked at in the scholarship for people to kind of level the playing field a little bit and uh, share the credit. It's not always the director. Well, you know, uh, Eddie, uh, Eric and I certainly, I think we try and do what we can to needle classrooms on that. We both have our theory, and I think I've heard him say it, and he's heard it. We discuss it and, you know, discuss Bazan and, and the Kaiju Cinema and Saris and, and uh, Kale's uh, rebuttal of Saris and the whole ongoing theory war of the 60s over auteur theory. We, we tell the students to take it with a grain of salt, and I, you know, I definitely we talk about a crumbling of the theory in certain regards, but, you know, just like in your writing... Uh, which is, you know, really utilitarian and like egalitarian across the composers, the producers, the writers, like even the studio. Um, I love how you talk about, yeah, there are certain directors that just over their body of work, absolutely, we need to talk about, you know, them, but not just them, you know, like you mentioned Kubrick or or Orson Welles and things like that. And and no one's going to argue that point, but I love how you're talking about this, this Joan Harrison thing. Do you think there's enough for a book there for you? or, or uh, you've been It's being doing? written. It's oh, being, it written, being written. I, I'm not writing it. Oh, I see. <laughs> That's too uh, bad. Christ- Christina Lane uh, down at the University of Miami, she is actually uh, deep in, in, into this and uh, producing a book on the career, life and career of Joan Harrison. Wonderful. Because I'll be, you know, that sounds fascinating to me. I know very little about her. She's a remarkable woman. She ended up very late in her life marrying Eric Ambler, the the you know 
spy novelist, Eric Ambler. Uh, and I mean, that's just remarkable to me. She was almost 50 years old and she married Eric Ambler and there were, and there was this amazing third act to both of their lives. And then she moved back to England and produced, uh, television shows that were like the equivalent of, uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents here for British television. And Ambler was writing some of them and she, she's just an extraordinary, uh, person. And, uh, it, her, her uh, you know, it's long overdue. The credit is long overdue. Excellent. Anyway, and it's funny what you were saying. I totally agree with. There are certain directors where it's like, well, there's no doubt this guy's an auteur. I mean, a, a Samuel Fuller, mm-hmm. or even somebody who you know he writes, produces, and directs. You can't argue the point that those are all <laughs> Sam Fuller films, right? Uh, and even somebody like Howard Hawks, who who never wrote his stories. But Howard Hawks was clearly an auteur. He just, every film he made, chose the writers. You know, those are all Howard Hawks movies. But where I found the auteur theory sort of falling down, and it all stemmed from Saris's book, you know, American Cinema, where he, he was just giving, you know, auteur status to guys like John Brom and, you know, uh, Stuart Heisler, directors like this, who are, who are, are just, you know, they're directors. And there's, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. And I'll tell you exactly what any of those directors, what their first comment would be when they're handed an assignment. This script is horrible or this script is really great. <laughs> and they're going to be really thrilled when the script is great. Like, finally, I got a great script. I can do something with this, you know. And it's just so weird to me that you, you, you know, we've all read so much film criticism where, where people are analyzing what's essentially kind of a bad movie and, and looking for traces of directorial uh-huh. style or something in it. Yeah. And it's exactly. like, no, this is a bad movie. This is a badly written movie. There's only so much this director can do to save it. And, and you know, by the same token, a director will get blamed for something that isn't his fault. Sure. It's like, you know, if, if the script is bad, it's bad, man. If the, if it's miscast because a producer demanded a certain actor be in it, what can the director do to save it? You know, nothing. I think anyway. with American cinema, when I read that book when I was 20, I, I devoured it and loved every minute of it. And then 10 years later, I wanted to burn it because <laughs> of the, the rigid hierarchy he placed on these directors as if he was the monarch of film saying – these are the directors that are worthy of your consideration, and these are the ones that I relegate to the basement. You know, and I was like, "Saris, come on." <laughs> you know? Well, I I agree with you, but I will say this: you know that that book was vital to a lot of people sure. to get them interested in the cinema and to look at it in a different way. And in a, and I don't I don't have any hard feelings towards Andrew Saris, but it just goes to show you that. You know, no one should be so doctrinaire. I mean, it's okay to change your mind. I mean, that that's just an important thing. I mean, I, I totally bought in completely to the theory for years. And uh, and now it's just like, oh, come on. You know? Well, that book also helped sell university curricula. Uh, I mean, using using the, import, the imp- newly imported auteur theory – uh, it was easier to sort of like talk about how cinema was worthy of, you know, of, of consideration and part as part of university curricula, uh, as opposed to it always being compared to, you know, the uh, mass consumption 
uh, vulgar sort of like, you know, um, low culture art form that it was right. when literature was the gold standard. And so, you know, this idea of the, the, these great directors and their works of art really helped sell it. You know, I mean, so I know I'm, I'm I, as I said, I do uh, I, I devoured the book and loved it. But then later on, I was just so angry because I saw that so many of the directors that I admired in there were given such sort of casual dismissal. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I know exactly what you mean. And and I think no one more so than, uh, you know, for years, John Huston had a had kind of a bad reputation mm-hmm. among the cineasts because he was a guy who loved great literature and adapted great works of literature and didn't appear to have a quote-unquote style of his own. Um, now you look at his filmography and it's like, no, I guess he just made really great movies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. In a, in a previous film noir episode, we did sort of do a almost kind of a noir one hundred and one type thing, and so there's I mean there's no real reason I think to go over some of the major major films and and its whole history and inception and what was going on in the culture and that post war environment. But uh, so it might just be a little bit easier to, to to segue directly into, as I said in an email to you, some idiosyncratic favorites of mine that I, that obviously that you've written about Eddie, but in case listeners don't have like, you know, a copy of dark city, for example, Eddie's Eddie's book, the lost world of film noir um, or other writings that you've done on noir. We could, we could sort of uh, talk about them a little bit. And a nice one, a nice way to segue into that was to be talked about the commentaries that you just did for the Kino release of Cry of the City, a favorite uh, film yeah. of mine, as well as 99 River Street, which I've, which I've been a, has been a favorite of mine for a long time. Not to mention I love um, Peggy Castle, too. I always love <laughs> Peggy Castle. Yes. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about like those two films. Uh, 99 River Street is one that was that played in Detroit as part of the current Noir City Film Festival. Um, you know, I think that is such a great film. To see John Payne uh, sort of transition out of his 40s uh, image into this tougher, sort of grittier crime sort of thriller, uh, mystery star. It was a little a little awkward at first, but he really sells it in a film like like 99 oh. River Street. And that supporting cast is wonderful. What are some of your thoughts about that particular film? Well, I think that's probably my favorite uh, Phil Carlson-directed movie. Uh, it's just a perfect match of the... I mean, I love any movie that just takes place in one night. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I like that too. That, that's that's so so very noir, <laughs> and it, you know, and it, the guy's a taxi driver, and you know, and just <laughs> everything about that movie is just pure pulp. Pure, as I'd say, quoting Nick Lowe, pure pulp for noir people. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love the movie. I love John Payne in that film, and and in all of those films that he made, and. And that transition, you know, he wasn't alone. I mean, that was like Dick Powell did that. Uh, Dana yeah, Andrews kind of did that. Dennis O'Keefe made that transition from being like a comedic, you know, lightweight guy to being a, a noir tough guy. Um, yeah, and and it's funny about 99 River Street. That is a film that, you know, I've been doing this a while now. I'm going to say uh, creeping up on 20 years of, of you know, presenting films uh, in theaters and noir festivals and all that kind of stuff. And 99 River Street was one of those rediscovered films that virtually nobody had written about 
or, you know, the film just wasn't seen. And I remember showing it, oh, my God, like 15 years ago or something in Los Angeles. And, and just steadily, you know, its reputation has grown because it's, it's just so tight. It's so perfect in every way. Great supporting cast. Uh, yes, and Peggy Castle. My God, the way Phil Carlson photographs Peggy Castle—it's almost—it's almost sexual harassment. <laughs> <laughs> it borders. Yes, it is. Really, that is really something. And and you know, speaking of which, I've I've always found Evelyn Keys pretty darn sexy too. I there's a sort of wholesome sex appeal uh, that I always uh, always admire. Totally, it's not totally wholesome. I can not totally wholesome. That. No, true. Uh, and in that particular film, that there's that that wonderful sequence in the theater, you know, which I won't spoil for for listeners, but uh, there's there's some some tour to tour de force yeah. um, ambitions in this film that are all beautifully realized. I'd love. Well, I can't she, wait to listen uh, she to your really, commentary. Um, I'm sorry. Have you have you heard the commentary or you haven't? No, heard not that? yet. Oh, okay. Well, then I, I I mean I won't spoil it, but um, you know she really wasn't. Evelyn had already moved to Europe by that point and she was back in Hollywood on some other business. And, uh, Eddie small, the producer of that picture gave her the script. She was really back because she was, uh, she stayed because she met, uh, Mike Todd, the producer when she was in small's office, I think, uh, being offered that picture. And I think she stayed because of her interest in Mike Todd and vice versa. And, uh, but but that script was nothing she was all that interested in until she read those two, her two big scenes in the movie, right. which are probably the two best best ones in the picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Evelyn Evelyn is uh, she's terrific and she's a surprise because uh, you know the way you described her kind of wholesome and uh, you know she she said that her job was to to be adorable. That was <laughs> that was what she did for a living. Adorable for a living. Yeah. And because uh, we we were actually pretty good friends in the mm-hmm. later years of her life, and um, but she it's amazing how she pops up in in all these noir pictures when nobody ever would think of Evelyn Keys, you know Scarlett O'Hara's younger sister. They'd never think of her as a noir actress, but she's in you know Johnny O'Clock and The Prowler sure. and The Killer That Stalked New York and Ninety Nine River Street. Hell's Half Acre and Hell's Half uh, Acre, yeah, yeah all, all these pictures, and she's she's always really. Uh, uh, she's got great energy on screen. That's what I, that's what I enjoy about Evelyn, you know, and, and she had it in real life too. Uh, you could just see like, wow, this woman was a movie star. Even when she was, you know, so much in her eighties and walking around her apartment in her sweatpants and everything is <laughs> like, she just radiates this, this light, you know, oh, how that's what I always think about, about movie stars is they, they have a light, you know, there, there's something in them that is just on mm-hmm. and it and it is kind of a luminous thing and it, it it separates them from other people it's it's just that's that, been my experience that you know? uh that sort of indefinable you know uh character trait that uh, the cap that the camera captures so well exactly that's the thing they and i the only way i can describe it is it's a light a light they, yeah. you know they walk they walk into a room and you your eyes go to them they just pop they, uh, <laughs> light, you know and uh, and it's funny, and they don't really lose it. It's odd. I mean, you know, uh, I, when I met Lawrence Tierney, he had the light. 
<laughs> it was a little <laughs> scary at times, but <laughs> Jeremy, that's a great transition yeah, because you could because, see it, you know. Oh yeah, I uh, I was just watching Born to Kill and Devil Thumbs a Ride uh, last night, and uh, talk about talk about one of the most ferocious, meanest sort of like you know sociopathic. <laughs> villains of noir yes, Holy he's, cow, not, he's Lord, not playing dude. that he's not playing that that's just coming out they the camera's just reading that well it's, i only recently came to De- the devil thumbs a ride did you want to let the listeners uh uh give a little background on that particular film followed followed by um, uh born to kill well i can tell you uh, a little behind the scenes thing about sure. the devil thumbs a ride um it it is probably the single most frustrating aspect of my uh my job as the czar the czar of noir is uh i can't show that film no print i cannot show that film uh there's some kind of rights issue warner brothers owns the you know it was an rko picture warner brothers owns the rko library but i don't want to go too far into the arcane aspects of this mm-hmm. stuff but you know to to screen a movie theatrically now uh you have to clear the underlying literary rights on right. these movies and for whatever reason warner brothers is not clearing the underlying literary rights on the devil thumbs a ride because Weird. they claim they claim they can't locate the heirs of the author robert Dusso. <laughs> and the reality is there are no heirs i mean i've done this research right? <laughs> right. but um it doesn't really matter because it's just something that they've passed on. And even though I can, I have found a print of the film at the British film Institute by law, I cannot show that film theatrically. Uh, And, and it's funny, you know, people mistakenly think like if they've seen something on TCM, it's like, well, why don't you show that? And it's like, well, the rules are totally different for, licensing something for broadcast versus licensing something for theatrical exhibition. And in a lot of cases, if you've seen it on TCM, it doesn't mean you're, they have it in perpetuity because they sign licensing deals for terms. You know, it's like they'll, they'll have a one or a two year deal to show movies from a studio's library or something. And, and people mistakenly believe that because they saw it on TCM, the TCM has it and can show it anytime they want. That that is not the case. I mean, they every package of films that they uh, they have at a certain time has a time limit on it, and it, and the license on those have to be renewed or not or whatever, you know. So, like when I did my Summer of Darkness thing for TCM in 2015, where we showed. I mean, a lot of film. Oh, yeah. um, you know, most of those films were under license to TCM. Right. And then there were several that were not where I, I had to impress upon them uh, the sincerity of my desire to show this film, which, which, which meant uh, that they had to pay extra money right. to license the film. Yeah, I think I think uh, one of those was Nightmare Alley, which oh, is a film I just yeah, love, and I really wanted to show Nightmare Alley. So so and, and, and it was not under license at the time, so so they had to spend that. 
Um, anyway, so this stuff happens, and it's uh, it's very frustrating. So, I mean, I can go to France and show the devil thumbs a ride in France, and there's no problem. But that same print I'm showing in France, I cannot screen Can't show. in the United States. Well, and more is the pity because, you know, I just recently came to that film, and um, wow. Wow. Uh, <laughs> It's a weird, it's a weird, very, minutes, you know? yeah, it's a very subversive, weird movie. I don't know that they intended it to be so subversive, but to me, it's like a, uh, it's almost like, um, I don't know how to, like a, like a sadistic noir cartoon. You know? <laughs> wow. Because it is. It's like, it's like you could see. Like who's directing this? Chuck Jones or somebody? It I mean, it's just moments. it's just one damn thing after another, and none of it's any good. You know, well, <laughs> the Chuck Jones moment for me happened to be when uh, when she tries to slip um, the note into his hand. I'm I'm forgetting the characters' names here, and it winds up on the floor as he's vacuuming, and he's pushing it, <laughs> pushing yes. the note around. Yes, and then, <laughs> and then it's so weird because you don't. You don't realize that this movie is actually playing for keeps. It's kind of, it's kind of squirmy in the sense of, is this really going to get as bad as we think it's going to get? And and then it does, you know. And like people end up dying in that film that you really don't think are going to die, you know. Oh, and it's like, it's remarkable. My wow. friend uh, Dave Hogan, who was on the show, who had written a film noir uh, book a few years ago in 2013. He loves that movie, and he writes, and, and really appropriately, I think he's like everything's great until the end where they just didn't have the money or the stock footage to yeah, pull off yeah. the, the automobile accident. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, the ending is is sadly, um, you know, it just it's like the wheels just fall <laughs> off. At the end. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. But what about Tierney in the Fountain? You know, like I, bet, I guess nine weeks later or something, he's off making Born to Kill, and holy smokes. Yeah. What a movie that is. That's about as depraved as it got, I think, in the 1940s. And I love the fact that it's directed by Robert Wise, Robert who's Weiss, like yeah. the Mr. Nice Guy, like the nicest man ever. And, uh, you know, he really uh, did an amazing job with that film. And Claire Trevor is great in that movie. I, You know, it's a, it's a funny thing. I'm glad you guys appreciate that movie because I've had different experiences showing it where – uh, I think younger audiences find it the the venality in that film to be kind of cornball mm. because it because it's so um shall I say overheated mm-hmm. you know uh, and they don't uh, younger people who have no understanding of the production code and how it worked at that right. time they don't get like how they had to push that so hard right up against the code you know uh because you know to have a scene in 1947 where people are getting turned on by like death and murder and all this stuff it's like holy cow you know when they're in the kitchen and they're they're reliving the murder up in reno and i love that and she's just getting so she's like in heat you know and how how this excites her and, and then he's like, he's discussing the, the exact positions of the bodies. You oh yeah. yeah, she's like you know getting aroused. <laughs> it's, and it's, and it, and it's weird because all they can do is just stand there and and, right. and just act as revved up as possible, you know. And to an audience that doesn't understand the context, 
you know, it, it's like, what the hell? This is goofy, you know? Yeah, you know, that's two of the problems right there is that uh, the younger audiences are, are not, they're not asking the right question, which is what kind of society is wants to make films like this at this time and for what reason? And and secondly, I don't think they really understand just how dysfunction attracts dysfunction in that world. Right. And they're not really... Uh, as you said, it's viewed a little cornballish because it's so it's 65, 70 years later now. And mm-hmm. um, they're just having a hard time right. putting, placing it into context. Yeah. And, and, and the code, as you say, is, is not something that they understand all that well either. Well, it's something that um, I, you know, when, when I do this thing, go out and talk about the movies, especially because I like to go to schools and, uh, you know, I get invited in on occasion to give a little talk about the history of film noir or something to it, whether it be uh, a film class or an arts class or a, I've done it even in American history classes wow. because uh, the period is so interesting. You know, that mid 20th century post-war, Cold War coming in, uh, how did all this stuff affect popular entertainment? Um, but I always end up talking mostly about the production code Mm -hmm. because I don't think kids can understand why movies were the way they were. It's not like the people are that different. Right. I mean, I I always start by saying, would it shock you to know that your grandparents had sex? Just like, (laughs) right. (laughs) It's just that they couldn't throw it up on the movie screen and here's how they did it instead. Mm -hmm. You know, and and I'll show them like the, the, first scene from double indemnity you know where they they meet noir mm-hmm. uh you know where phyllis and walter meet in the house and Ugh. he's checking out her anklet and all that stuff ah, yes. and it's like this is all so suggestive of what's to come and it's uh you know and the kids they start to get into it because it's like it's a you know it's a game like do you, can you find the clues in mm. this scene like as to what is really happening and uh I find it works pretty well to get young people uh, intrigued is you start talking about the code and this means this and, you know, and then all bets are off. Then they start seeing stuff and everything, <laughs> even if right. it's not there. <laughs> uh, I just, I, you know, I have had a massive crush on Gene Porter for a very long, a very long <laughs> time. And okay. was just cur- curious if, uh, um, uh, if, if you'd interviewed her over the years, uh, and maybe we could even talk about Cry Danger a little bit, too. I, I'm sorry to say I did not have the opportunity to interview Jean Porter. And, uh, yeah, she's terrific in Cry Danger. And, uh, you know, she was um, she would have been a great interview because, of course, she was married to Edward Dimitrik, exactly. the director, mm-hmm. uh, who was one of the Hollywood Ten and, uh, you know, blacklisted and then recanted and got his career back, you know, and there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of debate about all of that stuff, right. except that Dimitri was a really good director. No, exactly. Yeah, about damn that, straight. You know? um, and I know alive, one thing too. I do know, one little tidbit that I do know about cry danger is that the car, um, that they drive in cry danger. I think it's the one that actually, um, I don't think it's the one that gets wrecked, um, is Dimitri's car. Oh, that's great. They, that they borrowed it for the movie because I guess he showed up one day to like drop her off on the set or something. And <laughs> Robert Parrish said, that car is fantastic. We got to use that car. And oh. uh, 
and Dimitri loaned them the car for the movie. I'll watch it later today so I can look for that. Yeah, she she is so fantastic in that film. Hi, fellas. Oh, God, I know. I just, <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just wish she had been, I mean, I don't know the story, but, you know, exactly what happened to her career because of her marriage, but I just wish there was more of a body of work there, you know. I mean, I have pretty much everything she was ever in uh, that I can get my hands on. Uh, and unfortunately, her her scene was cut from Hell's a Poppin'. Uh, I know, so I never know who knows that, that if that exists in some vault somewhere or not. But uh, uh, that would have been very interesting to see. You know, Nick, I, I love this because you know I've been doing this a long time, and I always love it when somebody says, "I'm just a huge fill in the blank fan," <laughs> because it's like you've never heard this before. Like I've never <laughs> met a colossal Gene Porter fan. Oh gosh! I mean, everybody likes her, of course, you know. But to have somebody say, "I've seen her entire body of work," <laughs> that's, that's kind of a rare moment. So, congratulations! I, well, I think thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, in our email correspondence, Eddie, uh, I, I want to give Eric a chance to speak here, I'm, uh, but I do want to talk. I know you got to go soon, but I do want to talk a little bit about Moonrise and, and Cry at the City, if we can fit those in. Let's do that. Let's do that. Uh, this week, I believe, Kino Lorber is releasing on Blu-ray Cry of the City, a very, very favorite noir of mine uh, and, and, and all-time great Hope Emerson film. <laughs> yes. Yes. So uh, let's... Have you seen her entire body of work? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> she, um, she is amazing. But uh, we got to talk a little bit about Cry of the City. That's one of my favorites. And uh, you've just recorded an audio commentary, which I can't wait to get my hot little hands on. So um, what would you what's a uh, what are some of your thoughts about that? uh, That great film Uh, right off the top. uh, I I have to laugh a little bit about how the film was sold as being part of this semi documentary trend in, you know, because it's a Fox film and Fox had a lot of success with. Uh, House on 92nd Street and then Kiss of Death. And then it's like, okay, now we're going to do another one of these. And they were lucky to hire Robert Siadmak when he was available. Um, but he hated shooting on location. Oh. He just hated it. You know, he, he loved making movies in the studio where he had complete control over everything. So the thing that kind of blows my mind about Cry of the City and, you know, when you do an uh, uh, audio commentary, you you really study the films. You know, mm-hmm. you, you watch them multiple times and you're looking for anything of interest to talk about. Right. It's amazing how little documentary or sorry, not documentary, how little on location that movie. And, yeah. and I, I actually I couldn't get my hands. I'm sorry to say I didn't. I'm sure it exists and I just didn't have time to hunt it down and get it. Um, you know, the final shooting script for that film, because I know there are scenes that were shot that are not in the final. Oh, film. interesting. You know, uh, there are numerous scenes with Shelley Winters that were cut out of the film, which is, she's great in the movie. You know, it's, uh, I have to interject real quick, Eddie. I am not the world's biggest Shelley Winters fan. Uh, I, I, I admire her as an actress, but so, you know, I was born in 1970, so I grew up with a very different Shelley Winters and, you know, Poseidon yeah. Adventure Shelley Winters and so on and so forth. And, you know, uh, Roger Corman Shelley Winters. Right. But uh, I think she's so magnificent in that movie. Oh, my God. I love her in Cry of the City. I, I, I it just, you know, well, I, I got to tell you that early, that 1940s Shelley Winters is, 
you can't do any better than that. Wow. Yeah. And, and uh, if I don't know if you've ever seen a picture called Larceny. No. Uh, that's a universal noir with John Payne and oh. Dan Durier. And Shelley Winters is the is the woman caught between them. She steals that movie. Oh. I mean, she is unbelievably great in that film. Has some of the best one-liners ever, courtesy of the great Bill Bowers, one of my favorite screenwriters. And uh, you know, and and she's fantastic in Cry of the City. Uh, just makes a tremendously vivid character out of this woman who has, I think, two two scenes, really. Yeah. Two scenes in the movie, right? She just energizes the film the minute she's on screen. Yeah. she's It's great. And that's really, to me, that's the, the best thing about Cry of the City is the cast. The entire cast is fantastic. Is it wrong yeah. that I want to get a massage from Hope Emerson? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, love, I love it when Richard Conti sits down and she just starts rubbing his back. He's like, hey, that's pretty <laughs> You got some good, you got some magic fingers there, but then, but then the rest of their scenes just become so, I don't bizarre. I just, it's, it's such a, and you know, I think if we could just pause a moment and say that, uh, Victor Mature, you know, was just, you know, I think I'm so glad that, that he's gotten a reevaluation in the last 20, 30 years, because I thought, thought Victor Mature was always so natural. He was a natural. I always thought he was an underrated actor. Yeah. You, it's hard to explain. Like Victor Mature got um, the same knock at that time that Robert Mitchum got. Mm-hmm. It's like these guys aren't even trying. Right. And yet Mitchum comes out of it with like this reputation as like king of the Hepcats. Mm-hmm. And Victor Mature is like the guy who really can't act. And all of that, I think, is just because he did the Sword and Sandals movies, yeah. you know, Beefcake and, and he, Samson and Delilah. And, that, and it was just became an easy joke that stuck. And I think I agree with you. I think Victor Mature is really fantastic. <laughs> really and he's he's great in Cry of the City. He's good in everything he does. Yep. All the, all the noirs. I'm not going to yeah. say that there aren't times when he seems miscast. Yeah. But when you put him in a suit and a fedora and mm-hmm. have him sauntered through a film noir i mean he's as good as anybody agreed yeah. and uh he, he's and in cry of the city he's really good because um he's you know he he does that slow burn where he really starts to hate martin rome the character played by conti because this guy's just got so much charisma yeah you know and and it's like i hate this guy <laughs> I just want to bring him down, and it starts to get personal, you know. It and, does. Uh, and it's uh, anyway. It's a great film, and it's beautifully photographed. And you know, Siad Max, my favorite noir director. I just mm-hmm. he, he can't do anything wrong, in my estimation. He can he can pick the wrong project or be assigned the wrong project once in a while, but other if if the material suits him, it, he's he elevates just it, yeah. un- unbelievable, unbelievable. And it's a it's an interesting movie because the book is really odd, and if you see the structure of the film, it's just everything that the plot is about has happened before the story begins. Yeah, great you know, point. This, this robbery and who was guilty and is he really a cop killer and what the hell you know, and the jewel the Degrazzi jewels and all this stuff, and and then the movie is just this guy interacting one after another with all of these different <laughs> yeah. 
great point. I, I never even thought about it that way, Eddie. Yeah, and, this and, guy who's all gimpy, just <laughs> trying to make yeah, things just, light with he, his girl. And and, yeah. uh, and it's very weird when you watch the film again, try to figure out exactly how much time is passing. Oh. As, like, how, how long is Martin Rome actually on the run? It's it's kind of fascinating because it's hard to figure out, and uh, anyway, it's a it's a terrific movie, and um, I'm glad they finally were able to put it out on uh, in any form. You know, it's, no, I, it's I just available. ordered it last night. I ordered it last night from Amazon, so I'll be, I'll be it's it's interesting. I don't know why. Years ago, when Fox was doing its series, uh, you know, the Fox Film Noir collection, yeah, I bought and all, doing of all this stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and you're like waiting, like, well, where's Cry of the City? I mean, that's like the Nightmare Alley to me. Nightmare Alley and Cry of the City were like the peak for Fox. And. I, yeah, and, and, I, I forgot about that series. I, you know, they would put one out, and uh, and I, I would immediately buy it. Fallen Angel, or right, uh, right. Uh, yeah, Nightmare Alley, and and um, all, all, the entire sort of like box on parade. That what was the other one yeah. I was thinking of? Yeah, uh, and then box um, uh, and then suddenly the memo came down that like DVDs are dead. Yeah, <laughs> and like they just they just pulled the plug, mm. and. Um, well, they did that colossal uh, Ford at Fox box set. Box, yeah, that thing's huge. And, and I think they lost a lot of money on that. Money on that, yeah. And, it was just a I, bit I, too much. Yeah, and uh, that kind of... And there were a few films that never did get released. I mean, I did a commentary for the Brasher doubloon, like the great lost you know, Philip Marlowe movie. And, and that never got released. Never got released. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I've been told my audio commentary is sitting in a file cabinet <laughs> in somebody's office on the Fox lot. Oh, and my. They, they finally did. The film is now available on, you know, manufacture on demand, uh, from Fox, which I don't think anybody knows about, uh, but hmm. you can't get the audio commentary. Oh, with it, crap. Yeah. No, that's too bad. Um, hey, uh, a very, go ahead, Eric. Uh, if you have a story to tell, Nick. Go ahead. Is that what you say? Okay. Yeah. No, I was, I was gonna I was gonna pivot a little bit and um, ask Eddie about the uh, the Film Noir Foundation. And um, if you if you like, um, you, you told us a very interesting story about a woman on the run. The the story of of rescuing that film. Uh, I don't know if you if you want to or have time to tell, tell that story or, or any other. Uh... Yeah, Moonrise, in if you can too. Well, um, well, Moonrise, I'm happy to say, has been restored. That was a, a project that uh, the Film Foundation, Scorsese's Film Foundation, restored that a number of years ago with UCLA Film and Television Archives. So there is a really good print of Moonrise that is available in 35 millimeter. Nice, and and I love that film and. Uh, it's one I tend to sometimes overlook when I talk about movies that really influenced me, but I distinctly recall watching that film on daytime television, uh, back when I was a teenager and like, I was blown away by the scene where Dane Clark jumps from the Ferris wheel and, uh, it's like, Oh my God, what is this? (laughs) And that was like one of those moments. Everybody has these in their film going life, right? Where it's like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. Like, suddenly the camera is this guy falling from the top of a Ferris wheel. Uh, and, yeah, I that was one of the things that hooked me. Um, but the the stuff that we do at the Film Noir Foundation, uh, it, it, it's it been amazing 
uh, it's a detective story. I mean, it's like being the film detective to try to figure out, A, why do certain films get lost? Why do they disappear? Which has been a real eye-opener for me. Um, and then how do you rescue them? Like, you know, you got to follow the leads and trace stuff down. And, and you know, with Woman on the Run, that was such an amazing saga because we we found it. Uh, there were all kinds of rights issues. We had to do what they call a letter of indemnity so that we could show the film. But if the rights holders actually reappeared, they would sue me and not sue Universal uh, because they were saying we didn't, you know, we knew this wasn't the thing to do. This guy wanted to do it. So sue him. Wow. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, it, it happens not, uh, not infrequently that that it's the last resort for showing a movie where there are no, uh, where the rights are in question is, is signing a letter of indemnity, which is generally done for the benefit of the person who possesses the film, but doesn't hold the rights to it. So the who, person who wants to show it sign draws up a letter of indemnity, indemnifying the, the studio or in this case uh, from any kind of legal action. It's like you're you're assuming the responsibility for showing it. Uh, anyway, so we found Woman on the Run. It it was like a revelation. Then we lost it again in a fire in 2008. I mean, say we lost it. There was a fire on the lot at Universal Studios in 2008, and Woman on the Run, as well as many other uh, film prints and video masters and things, were lost in that fire. And and to Universal's credit, they they have replaced just about everything. Uh, so I'm not going to say there was a silver lining necessarily, but they couldn't replace woman on the run because they only distributed it. They didn't produce it. So they didn't have the negative. And it took me years to like hunt it down until we finally found a, a duplicate negative in the bowels of the British film Institute. And we have a wonderful relationship with them because, um, their charter is not to uh, – they only restore British films. So if they possess an American film or from another nation, any other nation, uh, and, and you want to restore it, they will provide you the materials uh, and you know repatriate the, the work, if you will, so that you can restore it. And then we just give them back the original materials once we've done – the restoration along with a new 35 print that they can put in the archive. So, so we were able to do that. And now that film has a totally new life. It's come out on Blu-ray and DVD. And, and I really think uh, I'm very proud of that because it's one of those things that you realize this can actually kind of alter uh, the narrative on, on movie history because it was a missing work of Norman Foster's, and I think people will now reevaluate Norman Foster a bit because he was always in the shadow of Orson Welles, and I think this film will allow him to step out of that shadow a bit, and it also um, gives a, a a great look at Anne Sheridan. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> as an actress, and she's also you know the silent producer of this film, out on her own, taking a chance put her own money into this movie, really believed in it, loved the film, and it tanked. And it was completely forgotten. 
So I think she's somebody who kind of got lost in the shuffle uh-huh. as an actress from that era because she never she never had the big defining part like Joan Crawford or Stan Wick or Betty. She has such an incredible wit and and she's so much the forties smart mouth dame that um, she, she's almost definitive in that regard. And so I'm just really really happy that we restored this film because. Uh, it shows her off to such great advantage. And so I really do feel a, a great uh, sense of pride and and a weird, like, across-the-years connection with her to say, hey, and look, we've, we found it, we've restored it, people still laugh in all the right places, they get scared in all the right places. <laughs> yeah. You win. In the end, you, you win. win. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And she's so good. If in the moment you see her in that film... You know, she's just, it's, it's all her. It's, it's, it was really is a, a good showcase for her and it's a good, uh, a good save by you for sure. Yeah. I so, don't think she's yeah. off screen for, you know, very much of that film. There might be sure. like 20 shots in the movie that she's not in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Are uh, there any, uh, celebrities, um, that are, uh, that work with you with, uh, the Film Noir Foundation? That uh, you know, like like actresses or actors that are very interested in noir that uh, donate their time or, or energy or money. Um, you know, that's a good. I wish there were more. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a little hard to tie down. The, the people who do appreciate it are writers. Writers, mm-hmm. like James Elroy is yeah. on our, is on our advisory council. Dennis Lehane is on our advisory council. Um, you know, crime fiction writers are the ones who seem to care the most. You know, um, Alexander Payne, uh, you know, the director, oh, yeah. is, uh, is a big proponent of the foundation I and has helped me with some, some various things. He's, he's quite – Alexander Payne is extremely knowledgeable about cinema history. He doesn't uh, make a big show of it, but – I actually met him at a screening of Napoleon, Abel Gantz's fantastic Napoleon. Uh, I met him. It was showing two days only in Oakland, California at the Paramount Theater. And I met him in the lobby. We had a really nice talk. And then I went back the next day to see it again. So this is a six-hour movie that I saw two days in a row, you know. And, And he was there again. And it and that kind of cemented wow. our friendship. It's like, wow, you came back to see this again. He goes, how many times are you going to get to see this in your life, right? I have to Not do this. I'm surprised, though, Eddie, because uh, he's in our classroom every semester, in a sense, because we always show The Cutting Edge, which is a, you know, a documentary about the craft and history of, uh, of motion picture editing. And Alexander Payne's in there quite a bit yeah. talking about uh, stuff. And so I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that he's a, a big advocate uh, and um, and also just really knowledgeable about cinema history. It doesn't surprise yes. me in the least. That's pretty cool about doing shows in Hollywood is that happens. <laughs> that happens kind of frequently. Yeah, I'm, I'll be introducing a film and I'll say, hey, there's Gina Gershon. There's a lot of pictures of you on the web with all sorts of, you know, uh, Rose McGowan and, and, and yeah, on well, and on Rose, and on. Rose, yeah. is, Rose is fantastic. Rose you know, uh, all power to her. She's into her, totally into her feminist firebrand stuff right now, uh, which I totally get. And she, it, 
I, I just will completely endorse Rose as a complete film fanatic and really, really knowledgeable sure. about movies. And uh, we did a we did a really fun thing a few years ago at the Turner Classic Movies Festival where we we acted like we were the heads of RKO <laughs> in 1948, and we were oh, going to make cool. the ultimate film noir. And of course, we made the point of saying that you know we wouldn't call it a film noir at that time. So we were we were trying to play act it perfectly and like, well, is this going to be a murder drama or is this going to be a crime thriller? Because that's kind of what the studios back then called these films. It was kind of one or the other, you know. And, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned to you guys like the difference. Uh, between those but i've kind of determined that this is the way the studios thought about it if Mm -hmm. a crime thriller was a movie that involved professional criminals uh so that would be like a cops and robbers movie or kiss of death or the asphalt jungle or something like that Mm -hmm. was a crime thriller but a murder drama was where amateurs were doing we're committing the crimes. <laughs> so that would be like double indemnity or the postman always rings twice or Mildred <laughs> right. Pierce or something like right. that, uh, where an ordinary person who never, you never thought was capable of it would do something drastic, you know? And, it, um, so I, I thought that was kind of interesting that those were the two industry terms that were used at the time. Although now it all falls into the big black reservoir of noir, you know? And so we were like, who do you get to write it? Who directs it? Who who are you going to put in the cast? Who's going well, to play the... I wonder if that's on video. I'd love to see that. I'm sure... Well, yes, it's on video, but TCM owns it. So so anyway, Rose uh, and I did this, and we had a great a great time. And, and she really impressed me because she really knew her film history, and she uh, knew quite a bit about film noir. She was a huge Jane Greer fan. Jane was like the woman that she would cast... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as as the female lead in her ultimate film noir. Uh, but we also got into some really great conversation about, um, you know, how to keep people watching older films and some of the, you know, the problems we face with preservation of these films and the the um, the the switch to a digital medium and how you have to be really cautious because you can screw it up if if you're not careful because if you're watching a movie in the wrong aspect ratio or you're or you're watching an old film from the 30s say on on a high def tv uh that's not a good thing <laughs> and uh and rose was a big advocate of of teaching people how to properly uh watch these things so you know uh, just to to interject very quickly uh it's interesting because I'm I'm both obviously I, I mentioned earlier that I'm a, a massive Jane Greer fan. She is my favorite femme fatale of all time, but um, I love I love Rose McGowan a lot too. And uh, I, you know she was set to do this sort of the Susan Cabot uh, biopic, oh. and um, and I I was reading the buzz about that in Variety and on, online and so excited, but then it kind of just fell apart after. Uh, after the after Grindhouse, after the you know the Rodriguez film, right, uh, and um, and it just got table shelved, whatever. And I thought, and now I don't think she's, you know, it's I think I don't think Rose is acting by. anymore. Exactly. So it's it, it's a pity because I thought that that would be you know I I, I love Susan Cabot that that one point twenty one uh, gigawatt smile of hers just always yeah. floors me every time, and it's such a tragic story. And that girl, it's, that it's girl an incredible too, story. You know, yeah. I mean. 
I guess I guess we've uh, people who don't know the Susan Cabot story. We've just we've just teased that one. So I guess that's what the internet is for, right? People yeah, absolutely. Can Google Susan Cabot and and see about her uh, her her fabulous rise and her her the tragic accident and uh, you know the attempt at the comeback and all that. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's quite a quite a saga, quite a story. Yeah. Have you ever if have I you ever seen? Oh God! Now I shouldn't have brought it up because I'm drawing a blank on the name of the picture. The movie that she made after she came back and she played the whole thing in a in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I know of the film. I do, I have not seen it. I've I saw you know mostly sign sign of the ram sign I, of the ram exactly yes and uh, yeah. no have you? Oh yeah, I've I've shown it at Noir City. Yeah, actually Sony has a has a it was a Columbia picture I think Sony has oh, a man. has a really good print of it, and it was fascinating because. Uh, when I showed that uh, film, a woman came, um, Jennifer Gold, I think her name is, um, came to that screening so excited because she uh, is a, 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 you know, a challenged, physically challenged woman who was making a film about uh, disabilities in the cinema. And she had never seen that movie and really wanted uh, to include that that film in her movie and talk about Susan Cabot's story. And, uh, and it was very exciting that, you know, I got to play a part in that where she said, wow, we've never seen this movie. And it was like one day only. And we showed it and uh, it, it's pretty great. She's terrific in it. She, that's the, that's the thing with, with Susan Cabot is she was always terrific. She that was a really talented actress. Who and was the thing that's confined. amazing about that, the thing that's amazing about that movie is <laughs> It's weird to see somebody with such a tragic story and that suddenly is disabled right. playing the villain, right? Uh, which she does in that movie. I mean, she's she's wicked in that film and and terrible. Uh, but what a what a courageous thing to do. You know, most movies about disabled people, you know, it's them overcoming the odds and being noble and blah, blah, blah. Right. And she's no, like, she's no, true. this is a good part. I want to play this, you, you know, see villain. <laughs> Oh, that's that's terrific. I wish we could find that film and resurrect it, but I mean, yeah, get, that, that get it out on, uh, on DVD of, uh, or something. Eddie's dream dream list, you know, getting 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 uh, uh, exhibition rights to to some of those. Yeah, yeah. I think we need to. We absolutely need to plug your your magnificent new book. I can speak on both behalf, Eric and myself, and in, in our film courses that we we adore, uh, or you know, quote unquote classic cinema, golden age cinema, early cinema, silent cinema. And just when we survey our students, there's no question, you know, since we both started teaching that they're very deficient in the older stuff, which, which is a huge paradox because it's so widely accessible. Now you don't have to go to the library of Congress for a print on something. You just go onto YouTube and odds are it's right sitting right there, you know? So, um, you know, yeah, but when there's so much to choose from, it, it makes the decision that much harder, really. I mean, I, I found well, that to be a problem with a lot of people. Like, if if you go on to one of these streaming services, it's like, what what do I watch? I mean, I how do I decide? You know, people Eddie, can seize up. Stage, <laughs> stage stage one is even getting them interested in the idea of an abstract black and white picture in the first place. So, right. So once once we can get that sort of like you know stimulus, um, you know. Or sorry, that that scratch stimulated. Then, then sure, uh, yeah, there's a lot to choose from. 
Well, uh, this is my this is my bumper sticker slogan in that regard. I always say that film noir is the gateway drug to classic cinema. <laughs> because because it is because kids will they will relate to film noir in in a way that they don't relate to other old films. Both both young men and young women. The women, of course, uh, you know, totally love the the style of the period and and the fact that the women presented in noir movies. I think that young women, uh, you know, really relate to the the female characters you see in noir because they're just bigger, bigger and tougher and more independent and fiercer in the parlance of today. Well, there's no question. Yeah, the 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 women in those films, whether they're even, even whether they're even cast in the archetypes of the good girl or the the femme fatale, definitely, you know, very contemporary. For, uh, um, uh, portrayals that I think definitely relate to late 20th century and 21st century sort of characterization and personas and sensibilities. Um, I, you know, we talked about that in the in, in our film noir class and how uh, students, particularly female students, were drawn to the characters uh, in in the film. So, absolutely, when you're when you're touring or whether we're in the classroom. Once they start watching it, it you're, you're, you you couldn't have put it better. It does become this wonderful gateway drug to older cinema. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's uh, I, I think that it's the type of thing where you know you're you're not going to can suddenly convince fifty percent of the people to go out and you know watch old movies instead of contemporary cinema. But you know if you can get uh, like when I go out to a classroom or something, I don't know what the case is with with you. But if I can talk to a class of 40 kids and I see six of them that appear to be really interested, I kind of feel that's a good day. <laughs> Let's face it, film noir is kind of a marginal what it's about. Um, but I just I do believe that it, it, it has persisted. I mean, it clearly has lasted. I mean, uh, it, it, these things do go in cycles. I mean, we're not the first generation to like track this and glom onto it and talk about it. I mean, it's been happening really since the sixties. People have been talking about film noir and it, and, and, you know, I'm happy that in the position I'm in, I'm able to a find stuff that's been lost along the way and B extend our, um, you know, what, what we think noir is, we can extend that a little bit because of, of work that I've done with finding examples of it in other countries, uh, bringing stuff from Argentina, bringing stuff in now from Japan and from Spain. And, you know, I showed a Norwegian noir not that long ago. And so this is, uh, it's an interesting noir to me has become uh, something that does capture the imagination of this generation. You can, you can, um, explore more of the world and cinema through film noir, which I think is fantastic. And that's sort of where I'm, you know, my continued work with it. That's the direction I'm going. Oh, that's great. So Eddie, where can people find you online to see your latest projects? Uh, well, there's a lot of projects that I'm working on right now. I do have a book that I came out with recently through through my own publishing company, Blackpool Productions. I'm sure you guys know what that reference is. Uh, a black pool opened up at my feet and I fell in. You know, Philip Marlowe from Farewell, My Lovely. Um, but that's a, that is called Gun Crazy, The Origin of American Outlaw Cinema. 
which is the first time I've done a book that's about a single film and sort of looking at it from its genesis all the way through uh, the production and the reception and, and then its influence on other films. Um, and you can go to, to the website, blackpoolproductions.com, and then you can find me at eddiemuller.com. Uh, there's also filmnoirfoundation.org, which is our flagship for the work we do uh, restoring and preserving these movies. There's also noircity.com, which is the exhibition end of what we do that will keep you up to date on the, the festivals and uh, all the screenings that we have around the country. So uh, that that's my online presence. Those, those four websites are pretty much how I uh, exist in cyberspace. And then you can find me. Uh, I'm doing a lot more work with uh, Turner Classic Movies, and I think in 2017, a couple of things I'm not at liberty to discuss yet, but keep an eye out on TCM. Thanks, Eddie, for coming on the show and being so generous with your time and talking about all these uh, this wonderful stuff that we're all so passionate about. We really, uh, we really do appreciate it. Eddie, it's a real thrill. I feel like I've known you a long time. Whether I'm showing my exploitation documentary, which you're in, or whether I'm showing some war documentary, which you're in, or reading your books, it's just, it's a great thrill and honor to have you on the program. And we, we love the contributions you've made to the, this, uh, the field that you love so much. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Eric and Nick, you guys are great. And, uh, you know, it, it's, I enjoyed it because this, this is what I do. Uh, but I take that as a great compliment when you say that you feel like you've known me a long time. I'll, I'll, I, that speaks highly for my, my books and my work then. I appreciate that very, very much. Yeah.